Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. I'm going to ask if you would to find in your copy of Scripture, Genesis chapter 15. We're in the second week of a sermon series entitled Revelation and Response in Biblical Worship. And we're going to go all the way back into the book of Genesis and see worship from a perspective of God's covenant promise there to Abraham. Some of you walked into this worship service today with a measure of success, finality, some things that have happened in your life that are a blessing. Some of you may be financial success. Some of you may have landed a big project at your job or completed a task at your job. Some of you may have recently entered into retirement and you're just enjoying every minute of your opportunity to kind of be at rest and not in the workforce. Others of you, you have walked into the room today and there's a measure of fear and anxiety. There's something you carried in here with you today some uncertainty. And even for some of you who kind of maybe hit a mountaintop and you, you've kind of scaled that height of accomplishing that task, it, you ask yourself this question, what's next? You're, you wonder, you know, are the markets going to last? Is the job going to continue? Or it, 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 are the good days going to always be there? And so there's a level of anxiety that you walk in with. And some of us, the anxiety we bring with us because of the uncertainties of the circumstances that we're facing in life. I just want to remind you, you're not alone. Those kind of things that you're uncertain about, the things that we're uncertain about, we're not the first ones to face those experiences. All the way back in Genesis chapter 15, it says at the very beginning of the chapter, after These things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, fear not, I am your shield and your reward shall be very great. What are after these things? Well, Abram in chapter 14 had taken his servants and his armies and rescued his nephew Lot, who had been uh, kind of taken captive, taken prisoner. So Abram had just come off a tremendously successful period of his life. He had followed God, he had obeyed God, left Ur of the Chaldees, he went to rescue Lot, he took care of his nephew, he saw God give him success, and even at the end of that event in chapter 14, he tithed of his blessings to Melchizedek, the king of Salem, who the New Testament, particularly in the book of Hebrews, would picture as a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ himself. And so you had this very high event that that Abram had just come off of, and yet when God speaks to him in this moment, God speaks to him and says, Abraham, don't be afraid. Because the reality is, folks, what happens with so many of us, maybe with all of us at certain moments and circumstances, is that uh, we let our situations and our fears and our frustrations kind of dictate how we're going to relate to God. No idea what Abram was afraid of. Maybe he was afraid of retaliation. Maybe he thought these kings that he had rescued Lot from would come after him. Maybe he wondered whether or not God's promises were true. It had been years since he left Ur of the Chaldees. It had been years since he had heard from God in his specific fashion, at least based on what the text tells us. And maybe he was wondering, maybe he was afraid of those things. I just want to remind you that God is the one who initiated this conversation with Abram. If you don't get anything else, I want you to get this key idea. The glory of God is revealed by Him initiating 
our redemption under his covenant promises that lead us to worship. It's God taking the initiative in the text. It's God speaking to Abraham, but it's ba- it, it, it is, it, the, the, the situation is Abraham's fear and God speaking to Abraham to show him who he is and his greatness and his glory. What we're going to do as we work through Genesis 15 is we're going to unpack seven implications for worship that flow out of this text. And they're going to go back and forth between revelation and response. Revelation being God, who God reveals himself to be and shows himself to be in the text. Response being what we do in response to God revealing himself to us. I'm going to ask you to listen fast because I'm going to talk fast this morning. I preached the early service, and, uh, and I looked down at, the wa- at my watch when I finished the early service, and it was way later than it should have been. So I tried to tighten it up a little bit in the last service, and I'm going to try to not keep you here till 1 or 1.30. So you listen fast, and we'll work through this text. Genesis chapter 15. The Lord said, Abram, fear not. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven. And number the stars if you're able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted to him as righteousness. He said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? But he said, O Lord God, uh, but he, he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. He brought him all these and cut them in half and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down to the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted four hundred years." But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. Afterward, they will come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. They shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Implication number one is a revelation implication, and it's this. The Lord initiates worship by His Word. The Lord spoke. The word of the Lord came two times in the text. That phrase is used over a hundred times in the Old and New Testament. The phrase is used, the word of the Lord came. And the very first time it's used in all of Scripture is used right here in Genesis chapter 15. The word of the Lord came. I, I want you to notice this is glorious, folks. God initiates conversation with his people. It isn't Abraham that initiated the event. 
Abraham didn't wake up one day and say, hey, I'm going to go follow a God I've never met into a place I've never known, and I'm going to leave my hometown and go to a promised land. No, God spoke to him. Genesis 12 told Abraham to get up and leave. And in this text, God initiated the conversation with Abraham. He came to him through his word. The word of the Lord came. I want you to grasp this, folks. We do not start worship. Worship doesn't begin with our interests. It doesn't begin with our desires. It doesn't begin with our preferences. It doesn't begin with our songs. It doesn't begin with our statements. It doesn't begin with our prayers. It doesn't begin with anything except the word of the Lord. God speaks. He is the initiator of all of the things that you and I experience. What I love about this text is that while something is going on with Abraham internally, while, while there's a fear, while there's an uncertainty, he came from a mountaintop and now he's in the middle of some fears and some worries and some frets, whatever's going on in Abram's life, God is the one who said, I'm going to speak into this situation. And the word of the Lord came to Abram. Practically, that means in our personal worship, the most important thing that you and I can do is to hear from God. Folks, it is important that you pray, and you have many concerns that you can bring to God in prayer. It's important that you sing. It's important that you worship. It's important that you set aside time for God. But when you set aside time for God, the most important thing that you should do in your time of the Lord is hear what God has to say to you. And yeah, you should say things to God, but I just want to tell you, the things that you have on your mind and heart, the things you need to pray about, God already knows they're there. I mean, we don't know what was causing Abraham fear. But God spoke to Abram, his very first words, the first time of many, many times throughout the pages of Scripture. God speaks and says to Abram, don't be afraid. I just want to remind you, no matter what's going on in your life, God already knows it. God is behind it. God is above it. God is in control of it. And he spoke into the situation and said, Abraham, don't be afraid. That's why we need God's word to be the initiator of our personal and private worship. It's also why our worship service effectively begins when we stand and read scripture. Because as important as it is that we praise and that we pray and that we sing, as important as it is that you hear from God's Word in preaching, the primary spokesperson in corporate worship is not Dr. Mike or Dustin or me or the musicians or even you as a congregation. As wonderful as congregational worship is and as great as it is, uh, one of our worship values is it's theocentric. The primary framework of our worship is God speaking. Another one of our worship values is that it's scriptural. It's God that initiates worship. It's his word that initiates worship. And when we bow ourselves before his word in humility and surrender and trust, then God is a way of working in and through us and speaking to us in ways that we didn't know we needed to hear because God is the one who's omnipotent and authoritative and he rules. The first implication is that the Lord initiates worship by His Word. Implication number two is a response implication. It's this, it's often our need that precipitates God's intervention. When God spoke, He said to Abram, fear not. He spoke to him in his need. At his point of concern, at his point of frustration, at his point of fear, at his point of worry, God spoke and said, don't be afraid, Abram. 
And then he testified about himself. I am your shield. I am the one who gave you a promise. I am the one who's in control. And so here's what that means for us. It means that the best thing we can do when we enter into God's presence is admit our need. Okay? There's a phrase out there that goes something like this. God helps those who help themselves. That's not in the Bible. You know who God helps? God helps those who are helpless. You know why? Because God loves to help the helpless. The reality is, folks, every single one of us walked in to this worship space today with some kind of gap or some kind of lack. You're not enough. You didn't have enough faith. You have weakness. You have fear. You have uncertainty. You have a disappointment. Someone disappointed you. You disappointed someone else. Something happened in your week that means you're not up to par, up to what God expects. That's all of us, folks. And the best thing we can do is admit that need before the Lord and acknowledge that when we're here today, we're here today as people in need, but we're worshiping a God who has no needs. We're worshiping a God who knows our needs before we walk in the room. Our response to a God who knows what's going on in our lives is to admit our helplessness. And some of us, that's exactly what we need to do in our worship service today. Implication number three, it's another revelation implication. The Lord makes promises that only he can keep. Notice what the Lord says. Abram told the Lord, what will you give me? The Lord said, your reward shall be very great, by the way. And then Abram said, what will you give me? For I continue childless. God had already promised to make Abraham a father of many nations. And this is about 10 years after God sent him from Ur of the Chaldees. So he's probably 85 after he left at 75 in Genesis 12. So 10 years and God had not given him a child yet. And it would be several more years before the child of promise came. So Abram's asking, Lord, what will you give me? Because my heir is my servant in my house. And then verse 4, the Lord, word of the Lord came again. And said, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and he said, look toward heaven. Number the stars if you're able to number them. And he said, so shall your offspring be. That is a massive promise. Abram, I know you're 85 years old. I know your wife is getting up there in years. If you're not actually dead, you're close to being dead. I mean, imagine starting your family at 85 and 75. You might want to take that. I don't even want to think about that. I'm half that age, and I'm thinking, there's no way. I can't keep up with my kids now. I don't even want to think about starting my family in my 80s. No way. God spoke to Abram and said, you're going to have a son. Fantastic, amazing, massive promise. And then he took Abram outside. It was nighttime, evidently. Look at the stars. Look at the stars, Abram. Look at them. Can you count them? Billions and billions and trillions of stars in the sky. That's how many your offspring will be, innumerable as the stars in the sky. Let me tell you something. God makes promises that only he can keep. This is a massive promise, massive set of promises. It's good business practice to under-promise and over-deliver. 
know what I'm saying? You, you say you can do less than you probably can do, and then you beat your timeline and beat your cost, and that's good business practice. I want to tell you something. That's not good theology because God doesn't overpromise and underdeliver. He doesn't underpromise and overdeliver. God just simply promises and delivers on what exactly He says. He is capable of doing things that are far beyond our imagination. And see, we look at it from, from, the, from you know, 4,000 years removed from these events. Abraham was 2,000 B.C. We can look back and see, okay, God gave Isaac, gave, gave Isaac to Abram, and then he had Jacob and the 12 tribes and all the people of Israel. And, and we can see that not only is Israel a great nation, a nation that God has protected and given back the land, and we can see God's promises fulfilled there, but the Bible tells us that Abraham's line isn't just those who are historically or nationally uh, or ethnically uh, Jews, Abraham's line is all those who would believe God. We are Abraham's children because we're followers of Jesus, and there are hundreds of millions of believers on planet Earth today, if not billions of believers, and throughout all of human history, there have been people who followed God, and so when you look out, God fulfilled his promise to Abraham that his line and offspring would be as innumerable as the stars in the sky. We can see that promise 4,000 years removed, but Abraham had that promise in the moment and couldn't see all of that in the future, and yet he believed God. Listen, God makes promises that only he can keep. That's good news. Our response to that is implication number four. Our primary obligation to the Lord is to believe. It's our primary obligation. Not our only, but our primary obligation is to believe. Notice what it says in verse 6. And he believed the Lord, and the Lord counted to him as righteousness. Abraham heard, or Abram, I'm sorry, I go back and forth. He, hasn't been re, he has not been renamed Abraham as of yet. But we use that new name all the time. But at this point in the text, he's still Abram. He believed God. And God counted to him as righteousness. He imputed his righteousness to Abraham. Some have wondered how were Old Testament saints saved. Were they saved differently? Because there was the law and there was circumcision and all these pictures and rituals. Let me tell you something, folks. Old Testament saints were saved the same way New Testament saints are saved, by, by faith. Abraham believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. This was before Moses and the law. This was before circumcision, which wouldn't take place till Ishmael was born. God saved Abraham based on Abraham's belief in him. And this isn't just some kind of mere intellectual belief. It's a wonderful thing if you open the pages of Scripture and you believe the facts of the gospel. That is wonderful, and that's a starting point for biblical faith. But saving faith isn't merely you saying, okay, I accept the facts that, that I find in the pages of Scripture. No, it is trusting in God alone. The biblical picture, definition of this type of faith is leaning one whole, one's whole weight upon it is completely trusting, laying down on the promise of God, depending on God alone to be your rescuer and redeemer. It is trusting that only God can save us. That's what biblical faith is. Old Testament faith, New Testament faith, relying completely on the Lord. We just sang about that. Leaning on the everlasting arms. It's not just us saying, okay, I think God can come through. It is saying, I'm going to trust that only God can come through. I'm going to depend on Him alone. And what God invites us to, He invites us to that kind of faith. Our primary obligation to Him is to believe. It's to believe the promises He makes us 
in His Word, and to trust in Jesus Christ alone. If you're here and you haven't yet trusted in Jesus alone, or somehow you've been at church and you've come to church before, but you're not sure about your salvation, you need to trust in Christ only to be your Savior. I was talking with a church member this morning after our early service, and there's a mutual friend of ours, somebody we've prayed for, somebody we've interacted with over the years, who, who, who has heard the gospel preached, heard the facts of the gospel, been witnessed to, been testified to. And, and for whatever reason, this, this gentleman cannot just trust in Christ alone. Maybe he believes the Bible or parts of the Bible. But in order for salvation to take place in our hearts and lives, it's not just good enough for us to say, okay, I think Jesus died on the cross. We've got to trust that Jesus' death on the cross is the only reason we can experience salvation and trust in him alone to be our Savior. And what God invited Abraham for and imputed righteousness to him on the, on the basis of Abraham believing in the Lord. So I'm here to tell you today. The best thing you and I can do in response to God speaking to us is to believe in God and believe in Jesus alone as our Savior. Implication number five. It's another revelation implication. It's this. The Lord's revelation and promises extend beyond our lives and our generation. The Lord said, verse 7, I'm the Lord. That's His personal name, Yahweh. I'm the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldees. Uh, to give you this land to possess. So God made Abram a promise, said, this is the land you're going to possess. What's fascinating is Abram never possessed the land. Not, not practically, not personally. He sojourned in the land. It was never his to own. It would be the, uh, the, the land that his children would own. And then God would go on to say, uh, bring me a heifer and give that covenant picture. And if you go on to verse 12 and 13, the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your offspring are going to be sojourners in a land they didn't know. In other words, they're going to Egypt. They're going to suffer in Egypt as slaves. Then they're going to come out with great possessions. And then they're going to possess this land. This land that I've told you about, they're going to possess. And they're going to come back at the right time so that I will bring judgment upon people who are wicked, the Amorites, the sin of the Amorites. What's beautiful here is that God's promise to Abraham extended beyond Abraham. I want to tell you something, folks. God loves you. And God loves you deeply. He loves you so much that he would send his son Jesus to be your savior and your redeemer. He loves you individually and wants you in a relationship with himself. But I want you to hear this. When God makes a promise to save us and when God makes a promise to redeem and work through us, it is not just for us individually. It is for those he would work to redeem through our lives and through our salvation and through the gospel that we would share. I mean, Abram believed God and God made a promise to him that was going to extend beyond Abraham's, to Abraham's family, to his line and his lineage, to people generations and generations down the, down the pathway. Aren't you glad Abram believed? I know Isaac's glad Abram believed, and Jacob's glad Abram believed, and Joseph is glad Abram believed, and all that heritage of of Israelites for generations. Folks, I want you to think about this for just a second. When God invites you to receive Him by faith, He is deeply concerned for you and your soul, but He's also deeply concerned for your children, for your grandchildren, for your great-grandchildren, for your neighbors, for your co-workers, for those that are around you, you realize when God makes a promise, He isn't just making a promise so that 
you will be saved. He's making a promise through you so that others will experience salvation. We say that, see that in the life of our church. I love looking out and seeing a multi-generational church. I absolutely love it. It's what God wants us to be. He wants us to be a church with young folks and old folks. He wants us to be a church where we have grandparents sitting in the room with their children and grandchildren. That's happening right here in, in this Sunday morning service, other Sunday morning services. He desires that. That pleases God. It pleases God that our church is built upon a strong foundation of people who have gone before, whose prayers and participation and support has benefited the life of Wilkesboro Baptist Church and helped us remain healthy and helped keep us healthy. God is pleased with that. He's pleased with that because, folks, He wants your children and my children, and He wants the children of our neighbors and the children of our family members and the children around to know Him as Lord and Savior. I want you to get this. When God makes a promise to be your Savior, it isn't just for your soul. It's for the soul of your kids and your grandkids and their grandkids and their great-grandkids. God wants to show His greatness, and we can look back. This is the beauty of this. We can look back and see that God fulfilled all of these promises. People of Israel went to Egypt for 400 years. They came out with great wealth. He plundered Egypt. God told Abraham that like 400 years before it would happen, that it would happen. And it happened and brought them into into the land of Canaan to bring judgment upon the Amorites. God fulfilled his promise. He is a sovereign, powerful, able God. And he invites us to trust him. This leads to implication number six. Our response, our ritual obligation in worship is to prepare and sacrifice. So Abram asked, how how am I to know that you're going to do all this, Lord? I mean, because you remember, we're looking back at it from 4,000 years of history. We can see what God did. Abraham's living in the moment. He didn't have a child. He's got a wife who's getting older. He's getting older. How am I to know, Lord, that this is what you want done? So here's what the Lord told him to do. He said to go get a goat, a heifer, a cow, and a ram. Three animals and, and a couple of birds and cut them in half and, and cut a covenant. He said, Abraham, what I want you to do is I want you to set up a covenant. It's called cutting a covenant in the ancient world. And basically what they would do is they would cut pieces of animal and lay it out. And, and that would be a, a, a covenant between two particular parties. So Abraham did that. He, he laid those animals out. And all day long, he fought off the birds. The birds of prey that were coming down and trying to eat on those animals that he had prepared as a sacrifice. What's God inviting of us? What's the picture there? The picture, folks, is that our obligation in worship when we gather is to be prepared and to be sacrificial in our worship. That's what he's inviting us to. God's the one making the promise. God's the one initiating the conversation. Abram's just simply asking, how do I know? And God invites him to worship him in ritual and response. He invites him to worship him sacrificially. What does that mean? It means, folks, when we open God's word and prepare our hearts. It means when you and I enter into the worship space, not just thinking about everything and anything that could happen, but we enter the worship space recognizing we're about to enter the presence of God with the presence of God's people. And we're ready for that. Sometimes it actually means that we're to be sacrificial in what we bring to, as our offering to the Lord in, in personal worship. I mean, some of you, I just none of the other services got this, okay? This is free of charge. Some of you, if you sing, it's a sacrifice of worship. 
to the ears of those around you. I mean, some, when I sing, it's not a pretty sound, except to the Lord. You know what I mean? When God invites us to worship Him, we, He invites us to bring a sacrifice to Him, a preparation of offering and praise, and sometimes it, it may not bless everybody else, but man, it really does bless everybody else. When y'all sing and, and, and we hear the song of God's people, it is a blessing and an encouragement and a sacrifice of praise, and He's inviting us to do just that. He's inviting us to give back sacrificially in supportive of His work. Why? Because it's our obligation to participate in the ritual of worship for God's glory. And and sometimes, folks, it means it's going to take some effort. I think there's a connection here. All day long, Abram fought off the birds. Where I live in the Oaks neighborhood, we we have turkey vultures. Maybe y'all have some in your neighborhoods as well. A couple years back, they landed and attacked my deck and attacked my grill. My grill cover. I mean, they, I, I'm glad I wasn't there. I would not have fought them off. Okay, I'm scared of bird flu and all that kind of stuff. I don't, I don't want any of it to do with it. Wouldn't have fought off the birds that day. But that's what Abram did. He fought off the birds of prey all day long. Watch this. Sometimes that's exactly what we've got to do spiritually. Satan will do anything he can to distract you in your personal time at home from, his, from God's word. Satan will do anything he can to tell you, ah, you don't need to be in in gathered worship this week. You don't need to open God's word. You don't need to celebrate. You don't need to praise. He'll do anything he can to distract you from the ritual of worship that we have the opportunity to participate in at our homes in private and at our gathered worship experiences in public. I love that Abraham fought off those birds to make sure that he was gathered in worship, that he was in worship of God. Let me give you... Implication number seven. It's this. It's a revelation implication. The Lord binds himself by covenant. So Abram all day fought off those birds. And then did you catch what happened? When the sun, or excuse me, the sun, as the sun was going down, verse 12, a deep sleep fell on Abram. So he prepared the sacrifices, prepared the covenant, had those animals laid out in a pathway. And he was anticipating something from God. So he fought off those birds all day. And at the end of the day, he fell asleep. Some of you are wondering if that means it's okay to sleep in church. I don't think that's there. But he fell asleep. But I want you to watch what happens. Warren Wiersbe put it this way. He said, This cutting of the covenant was a solemn ritual that involved the death of animals and the binding of a people to a promise. The persons making the covenant would sacrifice several animals and divide the bodies, placing the halves opposite each other on the ground. Then the parties would walk between the pieces of the sacrifices in declaration that if they failed to keep their word, they deserved the same fate as the animals. But Abraham's experience was different. He killed the animals, laid them on the ground, and spent the rest of the day fighting off the birds of prey that were attracted to the flesh and blood. When the sun went down, Abraham fell into a deep sleep. But God alone passed between the parts of the sacrifices. It was God who made promises to Abraham, not Abraham who made promises to God. There were no conditions on this covenant. The covenant of grace came from the generous heart of God. 
Abraham had prepared the sacrifices, been ready to make that covenant with God, fell asleep, and in his sleep he had a dream of a smoking fire pot and a smoking torch, a flaming torch. Maybe imagery that would be uh, pictured later when God would lead his people out of, e- out of Egypt with the, the flaming fire and the, and the pillar of smoke, pillar of cloud and pillar of smoke. It, regardless, God is represented in that torch and in that smoking fire pot. And he didn't wake Abraham up. He didn't say, Abraham, I want you to walk through this covenant with me. The Lord alone went through those animals. The Lord alone went through that covenant and he bound himself to the promise he made to Abraham. Irrespective of what Abraham did. Folks, that's grace. That's God interacting and intervening in our situation. Not not inviting us to participate in the sense of we owe him something. Oh, we owe him a lot. But we cannot keep the covenant that he made with us. He will never break the covenant he made with us. That picture foreshadows what Jesus would do on a cross when he was hanging there, beaten and bruised and bloodied and dying for your sins and my sins. Jesus didn't invite us to pick up the cross and carry it with him. Jesus died on the cross so that we would enter into a relationship with him. The Lord bound himself to his covenant. He made a covenant he didn't have to make. Made a promise he didn't have to make to a man that was not going to be completely faithful to the covenant anyway. You know what God has done with us? He's bound himself to a covenant promise through Jesus Christ to people like you and me who aren't fully going to fulfill our end of the bargain. I love that God bound himself to the covenant. What does that mean for us today? Christian, it means we're to keep faith. Some of you are sitting here and you're thinking, man, I'm not like Abraham. I don't know that I would have believed God in that moment. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I'm a patriarch. I don't, I don't follow along with, with this pattern in Abram's life. I just want to remind you, Abraham believed God, but man, he had some doozies of failures in his life. A couple chapters before, he went down to Egypt to escape a famine. And he told the the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, that that Sarah was his sister and not his wife. Which is partially true. She was a half-sister. But it got him in all sort of trouble. A few years after this event, after he believed God and God counted him him as righteousness, Abram pulled the same stunt with the king uh, king of Abimelech. Who was in the promised land. Same thing. Did the same thing. The very next chapter, after he believed God and believed that God was going to fulfill his promises, Abram took another wife, Hagar, and had Ishmael, trying to fulfill God's promises his own way, which caused all sort of trouble, both in his home and, by the way, part of the reason we have so much geopolitical turmoil in the Middle East is because there are two lines from Abraham, Ishmael and Isaac. I mean, Abraham's sin, his disbelief in God in Genesis 16, has geopolitical consequences 4,000 years later. I certainly hope our failures don't have that extensive of problems 4,000 years from now. My point is this. If Abraham believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness, and he still messed up and failed, the power of God redeeming us and rescuing us rests in God's promise to us, not in our faithfulness to Him. So keep faith. Sure, if you blow it, if you blew it this week, come to God and ask Him for forgiveness. 
When you blow it next week or next month, come back to God and ask Him for forgiveness because God is not going to break His covenant with you. He's not going to turn His back on you. He's not going to say, I'm going to let you go. No, He walked through those animals. He cut a covenant with us. He died on a cross. He's never going to let you go. So keep faith. Folks, that kind of God deserves our worship. I mean, He just does. If you look back on your shortcomings and your failures and your flaws, and I look back on mine, we shouldn't be here. We shouldn't be in this room today. We shouldn't celebrate a God who loves us because we don't deserve a God who loves us. And yet the God who loves us made a promise, made promises that only He can keep to us that He will never leave us or forsake us and never fail in those promises He made to us. He is great and so He is worthy of our worship. When we sing in a minute, whether it's the invitation or the closing praise song, we need to worship because He's worthy of it. Amen? Covenant He made with you, the promise He made to you. If you're in the room today and you haven't yet trusted in Jesus alone to be your Savior, let me invite you, let this be the day that you lean your full weight on Christ and trust Him alone to be your forgiver and redeemer. Abraham had the imputed righteousness of God because he believed in God. If you're here and you're lost, and you've heard the gospel, you've thought about it, you've wondered about it, and you have not yet experienced the forgiveness and promise-keeping grace of God, let me beg of you, let today be the day you trust in Jesus alone. Abraham did. He believed in God. He laid his whole weight, his whole soul on God. And God counted to him as righteousness. If you want the forgiveness of God, all God asks of you is to believe in Jesus alone to be your Savior. And if you'll trust in Jesus alone, God will forgive you and give you life and all the promises The Bible says all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And he promises to be your protector, your shield, your defender, your salvation forever. If that's you today, let today be the day you trust Jesus to be your Savior. Stand with me, if you will, as we enter into this time of invitation. Father, you are so great. I can't even imagine... The majesty of your promise-keeping glory found in this text. Heavenly Father, you made promises that we couldn't hope to even expect of you to make. You made them and you kept them. And you are keeping them yet today. Lord, let your promise to us drive us to faith and worship. And Lord God, for those in the room that have yet to believe in you, and I'm sure there are several, sure there are children and teenagers and adults, who may believe factually, who may, who may have head knowledge, who may have um, some kind of past experience, but they haven't trusted in you alone. They're trying to work their way into your favor. I pray that you show them through the power of your Holy Spirit today and the glory and the truth of your word that they need to rely on you and you alone to be their Savior and their Lord. I pray, Lord, for their soul and their salvation. I pray for that friend of ours, Lord, who hasn't put his faith in you yet. I pray that it would be just a short number of days before he trusts in you alone and he realizes that he needs Christ to be his Savior. I pray, Lord, for our family members and friends, our children, teenagers, grandchildren who have yet to believe in you. I pray, Lord, that you would convict their hearts of their need for faith and bring them to salvation. 
and rescue them and redeem them as you did with Abraham, as you've done with us. Lord, save and redeem for your glory and for, your, for the praise of your name. Have your way in our hearts this day in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.